Welcome to Podcast at Betwright. I'm Lucretia McCulley, Director of Outreach Services at Betwright Library. Our author today is Dr. Jeffrey Hass, Associate Professor of Sociology. Professor Hass is the author of a new book, Power, Culture, and Economic Change in Russia to the Undiscovered Country of Post-Socialism, 1988-2008. to Utilizing cutting-edge theory and unique data, this book examines the role of power, culture, and practice in Russia's story of post-socialist economic change and provides a framework for addressing general economic change. Jeff, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Alicia. So to start off, what inspired you to write on this particular topic? Um, there were really three overlapping sources of inspiration. The first was as an undergraduate and then early in graduate school. I was very interested in revolutions and political change, social change generally. Um, so I had that general uh, interest. In 1993, I then spent six months in St. Petersburg in Russia um, on a language exchange program. And that was the second year of post-socialism. Um, the USSR had collapsed. It seemed the economy was collapsing every day. And I got to see a revolution of sorts up close. And it was fascinating that entrepreneurs, street vendors, managers, the like, didn't seem to be acting as I would have thought um, market-oriented actors should behave. So there's this little dissonance going on. Um, and that would drive me to, in fact, go and collect data for the dissertation and move this forward. <clears throat> the third inspiration was that this was a tough theoretical challenge because I found it very difficult um, to really address some of these, um, these problematic observations with existing theory. Economic theory um, wasn't going to work, and in fact, by this point in time, there was already a cottage industry pointing out the weaknesses mm -hmm. in mainstream economics. Political science is okay, but it only really focused on elite politics, elite pacts, intended to take things like the rule of law institutions for granted, when what I was seeing was, we can't do that. Um, political and economic sociology, sociology of culture were all over the place. So there was a challenge of trying to bring insights, um, the baby in the bathwater, as it were, from all of these different sources, pull it together with this empirical example of a broader range of topics of social change and bring everything together in a nice box with a nice bow. So there was always this constant inspiration of the specific case of Russia, the general case of social change, um, and the big issues of theory. And discoveries just kind of kept me going as well. That power and culture are multidimensional, and so there's change in both, mm -hmm. leading to contradictions, confusion, conflict. The relations between power and culture were contradictory as they're changing at the same time. Um, that there was, uh, there were battles not only over material gains like money or property, but also over what a normal economy should look like. It's the last point of inspiration was, in fact, when I was done, I could take what I had found and actually expand it to issues outside of Russia. For example, the whole battle over health care, over the American economy post-2008, um, and just wait until peak oil kicks in. Much of that really contentious discourse has been similar to that which one saw in Russia. That is, what are the source of problems? Is America's economy normal? Or if not, what should a normal economy look like? So the battle over healthcare, for example, what is a normal healthcare system supposed to be? What does that say? How does that speak to issues of status and power, but also issues of legitimacy and people's broader cosmologies? 
So in a nutshell, there were, there were all these multiple interesting intellectual challenges that kind of kept this going every stage of the way. It's been fantastic in a way I'm sad right. <laughs> that it's done. It's, it's been, over. Yes, yeah, so alas yeah. and alack. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure you've given papers and discussed your book with colleagues, but what about teaching and interacting with undergraduates? How did that contribute to the development of the book and project? Yeah, um, let me answer it this way. It's, if, at research universities, for example, one works with graduate students mm-hmm. um, who have had years of specific training in theory and methods, and the whole point is to push the envelope on existing theory and methods, and there's right. a lot that can be gained from that. The downside to that is, though, that you tend to get these blinders, mm-hmm. um, that sometimes there are questions which aren't that important, but they artificially um, are raised in importance, and other fundamental questions sometimes are totally off the radar. Teaching in a place like this, a liberal arts institution, um, kicks those blinders off um, because the students have not been socialized into discipline-specific ways of thinking. They're asking um, more profound questions or more profoundly curious questions, which means I can't go into a class or into a discussion in my office with the usual set of assumptions that I would have if I were talking to a colleague, for example. I have to backtrack. Um, But that means I have to keep asking questions about the fundamental nature of power Mm -hmm. or culture. I go into ASA, I give a talk. I don't need to define what power is, really, because we all kind of know what it is. Or do we? Um, Your undergraduates are more likely to scratch their heads and say, okay, what are you talking about? So it forces me to innovate as well as know what I'm talking about. So um, that's been something that's been a very important gain from interacting with undergraduates. Is, uh, I've always thought that profundity decreases as one gets older. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, from, the, from the mouths of babes comes wisdom. So um, doing liberal arts, uh, constantly teaching undergraduates, has really had a very powerful intellectual benefit that I might not have had had I been working you know, only at R1, right. for example. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great. They're, they're pushing you in different ways. Oh, yeah. Well, how could the University of Richmond community use this book to address various social issues on campus? The book itself isn't about how to change things. It's more about how change operates. Mm -hmm. So it's got a different set of lessons for that than I think maybe some other Mm -hmm. um, research might have. And I suppose um, really maybe two warnings. Um, The first warning is to be careful of being caught up in this whole game of normality. Um, when socialism collapsed, you had reform politicians and economists come rushing in. Some of these economists come rushing in from Latin America, like Jeffrey Sachs, who thought they had the keys to truth. They understood how things operate, therefore they understood how to reform systems. Often they were wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it behooves us to take that lesson when we ask questions about race or gender or whatever. Um, never presume that you have the keys to truth no matter what side of the barriers you're on. That's, that's the first warning. The second is that change is a really messy, messy business because of these multiple levels of power and culture. Think about culture for a second. One level is what I call the um, tactical or superficialist categories. There's a deeper level. It's more cognitive. It's possible to change the first, but not change the second. I saw this with marketing divisions in Russia, for example. So you can have people talk differently about race, but still act in presumably the same way. How do you really change practice when... Culture is operating on these different levels. Same with power. 
If you tell someone, don't do that, you're inviting resistance. On the other hand, persuasion without power, that's going to be an effective change. So if you're addressing social issues for progressive reasons, one has to keep in mind all these various dimensions. And it's a very tricky business. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of time. Um, So I guess I don't provide blueprints in this so much as warnings that we should always keep in the back of our heads when we tackle whatever kinds of social or economic or political issues come our way, whether on campus or in Washington, D.C. or in the IMF or anywhere like that. Good. Good advice. Well, how would you envision undergraduate students using the book for their study and research? Um, first, I you know, there's the old saying, we can see further because we stand on the shoulders of giants, and there's a lot of giants <laughs> in this book. So I've, there are my own ideas in there, and I hope that they're useful, but at least if someone's interested in change or power or culture... There's a lot of references. So there's references, original ideas. There's a lot of things that people could play with if they want to look at economic or political or social change. Um, at least I hope that comes across. Um, so that's first. There's, I've done a lot of work for that book, and I hope that it's, there's utility there that undergraduates could use. The other thing is I hope that it would transmit uh, an inspiration for learning. I was inspired by the likes of Theda Scotchpole, Charles Tilley, how they asked big questions that went beyond the bounds of discipline-specific theories and data. I mean, they were, they literally could take history and politics and sociology and anthropology under their wings and ask big questions, um, as Max Weber once used to do. And I hope that the way I've framed it transmits you know, from one generation to the next, as it was transmitted to me, that you can ask these big questions and that in and of itself can be exciting. Um, even if someone looking at this for a term paper isn't going to go out to graduate school, that still they can see, look, there's a love in this that's intrinsic uh, to the scholarly process in and of itself. Okay. So. Well, I hope they discover that and I hope they find it. So my last question is, how did library services support you in writing this book? Um, First Interlibrary Loan has been helpful. Um, a lot of the material I need is in Russia, so it's always tricky to get all of that stuff. Right. Anyhow, but for what there is scattered across mm-hmm. the U.S., um, uh, library staff have been very, very helpful at getting hold of that material. Even more, though, and this is going to sound very banal, is um, just the digital services that we have. I love JSTOR. I mm-hmm. still remember the bad old days when I would have to go into Princeton's Firestone Library and go from shelf to shelf, taking out these stacks of journals and hoping that the ones I needed were there, mm-hmm. and spending afternoons combing through, looking for references, writing down stuff. We didn't have laptops then either. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was a, a laborious process. I can do, thanks to JSTOR and what we have available, we subscribe to, I can do as much in an afternoon as I used to do in a week. And that has really made the process, not only of collecting theory or data, but thinking about it, much more effective. The less time I have to spend collecting this, the more time I can spend thinking about it and writing and rewriting it. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that I think we overlook, and I suspect this is something our students take for granted, but um, older timers like myself <laughs> very much appreciate having those kind of resources available. It's made the scholarly process a lot easier. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that, so, yes. A lot of us have seen lots of change. <laughs> yeah, and it doesn't end it either. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, Dr. Haas, for your conversation today. Power, Culture, and Economic Change in Russia is available in Boatwright Library and is on sale in the University Bookstore. Thank you. You've been listening to podcasts at Boatwright. Your host was Lucretia McCauley. Our guest today was Dr. Jeffrey Haas. Editing and production was performed by Andy Morton. Visit Boatwright Library on the web at library.richmond.edu.